Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Let's pick up that conversation I had with Damien from last time, where we discuss another five of the 10 additional creative financing strategies we are outlining to bring the series to an end. Today we'll cover adverse possession, credit cards and personal loans, yes, would you believe, assignable off-plan contracts, friends and family, and joint ventures. And speaking of joint ventures, just a quick heads up as an aside for you that uh, it's one of the central themes we'll be covering in our upcoming 360-degree business planning workshops later this month. London will be uh, Sunday the 22nd of January and Manchester the 28th of January, that's a Saturday. Uh, We've got three core streams, buy to let, buy to sell, and indeed joint ventures, hence the link. But check out the show notes for the link to the workshop sign-up page or just drop me an email, podcast at propertyvoice.net instead. That's just a quick aside. So let's get back into the conversation where we left it off last time. Something to do with squatting, I think, is where we left it, if you remember. What's that all about then? Well, we're about to find out. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. People actually live in houses then. Yeah. Ah, now there's a nice segue uh, to my next one. People actually living in houses. Can I pick up my next one? I mean, I'm curious to see how the segue works. Right. But yeah, go for it. So, how about squatting? There we go. Oh, That's, I see what you did. There. Yeah, yeah. Creative strategy. The next one on my list is called adverse possession, uh, otherwise known as squatting. And essentially, what we've got here is uh, is, is is claiming legal title to a property using uh, using the law as the as the way to do that and um, under and, and I've never done this one so I can only really talk from a, a knowledge and theoretical point of view so there's my big caveat and I've never squatted in somewhere before uh, well, perhaps I have actually but I don't want to admit it um, but well when when I say squat it, you know to get legal ownership it has to be at least 10 years uh, so um, that's one of the reasons why I haven't done it because I probably don't want to stay anywhere for 10 years for a start. But what, what can happen here is there's two types of, uh, of, of land. There's either registered land or unregistered land in terms of title. Because believe it or not, there wasn't a, a land registry forever and a day. So uh, not all land in the UK, because um, we're going to talk about the UK, not all land in the UK is actually registered with land registry. So what, what the... Um, the, law, the lawmakers decided to do was make sure that people had, you know, clear legal title when they're selling property, and they came up with a system which basically says, if you have uh, occupied a property or a piece of land for a, a significant period of time, ten years, um, and this came in in 19, sorry, 2003, the um, you could claim t- legal title to that piece of land, and then it'd be yours, and then you could sell that piece of land or that property on with clean legal title. So it gives certainty of title, and that's how all of the UK title law is uh, predicated, effectively. But if you, uh, so if the, ti- if the property was unregistered, say it was a field, 
you can check at land registry, is this registered? And if not, you can put a fence around the field, you can lock it, you can maintain it, you can put cattle on to graze if you so wish, and basically use it as your own. And if you do that for a period of 10 years, then you can apply to land registry to have it registered in your name. And uh, after a two-year period, I think it is, uh, if there's no objection, it will be transferred and registered in your name. And there are people who have this as their primary property strategy. A little bit of a long-term game, but as you can probably imagine, so it doesn't have to be land. It can actually be literally houses or offices or things like that. Um, it, you know, it, occupy it for 10 years as if it's your own. Look after it. Obviously, you need to evidence all of this, so that's going to be something to think about. But in 10 years, 12 years or so, you can then own that property legally. And the reason I'm calling it a creative financing strategy is obviously you don't have to spend any money to acquire it. So it's a very niche strategy. It's one I don't have direct experience on, so don't ask me too many detailed questions, Damien. Um, but I think you know, for some people, uh, if you're wandering around and you see that empty property on the street corner that looks a little bit uh, tired and has been for many years, maybe it's one to think about uh, getting access to. Try and find. You have to try and trace the legal owner if they are registered. Do all that good stuff. But otherwise, you know, start making use of it. And in 10 years, it could be yours. I mean, it's an interesting one, certainly. The bits I would want to be checking is, at what point is it adverse possession versus just breaking and entering? So I don't know where the legal standpoint is there, but I actually do have a bit of experience with this. Um, oh, you have squatted. Of, yeah, I, I'm basically squatting where I live right now. Um, no, I'm not, before anyone comes looking for me. Um, when I used to work with the government quite a lot, the government has random bits of land that most of the time they don't even know that they own. And we, I sold a piece of land that when we turned up on site to do sort of the assessment of it, it had one of these fences around it with a big sign on it saying, you know, John's fencing, call this number. Um, so I gave the guy a ring. It was like, why have you put a fence around our land? And he's like, oh, that's what I do. I go around fencing off pieces of land that are unregistered. And I put my number on it. I take all the documentation to say when I've done it and so how long it's been in possession. And that's just what I do. That's Effectively, that was his strategy for acquiring land. Um, he owned a fencing company, so he used to do this anyway. <laughs> and so obviously, we got there. We're like, all right, mate, nice try, but do you want to clear off now? Um, and so we started the process to get rid of him. Um, as an interesting business angle, though, he then did turn around and say, oh, well, what you should do is you should have a fence put around this so nobody else can do it. You <laughs> want to pay me for the fence I put up? Um, so, you know, you've got to admire his entrepreneurial spirit there, but probably not something I'll be getting involved in anytime soon. No, and I think, you know, you probably have to fence quite a lot of areas before you get the winner. But uh, funny, funny enough, you just jog my memory. I do know somebody a friend of mine who had a piece of land and they and they had that same experience that you just described somebody put a fence yeah. on it put a lock on it put a sign on it and um fortunately uh, and this is one of the things here if you've got a piece of land or a property lying around somewhere which is kind of empty or not you're not doing anything with i suggest you go around now and again and just check <laughs> At least every 10 years yeah well certainly within every 10 years which shouldn't be that onerous um and then we are taking the extremes here, aren't we, yeah. of someone just fencing off a piece of land. The way this actually plays out in a more common circumstances is when someone you know, moves a fence boundary over a neighbor's land or extends it up the back. If it's a row of terraces, they extend their back fence to cover another part. If you can then show that you've done that for 10 plus years, then you can say, well, actually, 
that isn't, even though it's not on my title registry, I've now adverse possessed this for the past 10 years. I want to include that on my uh, land registry. So that's how it works in a more actual way rather than people just randomly fencing off bits of land. So that's something to bear in mind. Yeah, you don't have to inspect a piece of land in a field or something that you've got every 10 years, but keep an eye on your boundaries. If a neighbor says, oh, any chance I can just redo this fence, make sure they do stick to the actual boundaries and don't encroach on your land a bit and then after 10 years say well now that's mine yeah i totally agree and and that we, we won't get into too much into neighborly disputes but that is a big cause of neighborly dis, neighborly disputes but it, as a creative financing strategy for acquiring property is probably the the first part of the conversation albeit it's going to be difficult it's going to be a slow burn um and it's going to be possibly a low conversion rate yeah <laughs> Okay, so let's, we've probably done that one now. So have you got another one to talk about? Yeah, I've got a couple left still. Um, so assignable off-plan contracts. This is something, you know, full disclosure, I've not done personally myself. I came pretty close to doing it, but then decided to keep it. Um, but effectively, what this means is you agree to purchase a property off-plan, so usually from a developer, um, and if you buy an off-plan, usually purchase quite far in advance of the actual property being completed and the contract is fairly standard straightforward you will have things like reservations fee and then the rest of the fees will be payable over a period that you agree and they're all different so there's no point trying to guess what they are but most contracts will say once you've reserved and once you've put X amount of money in that then becomes yours you've legally agreed to buy that property it turns into a normal sort of exchange with a completion later down the line fairly straightforward when you stick a clause in that says, I want this contract to be assignable, what that means is then you can sell your right to purchase this property onto somebody else for the price that you've agreed. So if it's a long build-out period, let's say you buy it off-plan, it's not going to be built for two years. If capital appreciation kicks in and you agree to buy it at 200000 somebody else is now willing to pay 300000 for it, you can assign your contract at two hundred to somebody else. So you can effectively make a profit before the building has been completed. So I didn't do that because there wasn't huge capital appreciation, so I ended up just buying it and completing it anyway. But I did fight with the developer to make sure that I had the contract was assignable within it. Yeah, and I think therein lies part of the risk as well, if people want to pursue this as a strategy. Um, I think there was a lot of this going on around about 2007 time, for example. I when did I when were I do two thousand six ish? Yeah. So yeah, I almost certainly should have assigned the contract and moved on, but didn't. <laughs> and then what happened in two thousand eight, nine? We all had a cry. We all, we all had a cry. So um yeah, this is one that'll probably get peddled around uh, you know, the sort of guru property uh, communities in uh, in hot markets, you know, when the market cycle is at a peak you know, do assignment contracts, markets going up, you know, you get gazumping, gazundering, all that sort of thing going on. Uh, well, not gazundering, obviously, but certainly gazumping. Uh, and then you'll find things like off-plan with, you know, assignable contracts, people flipping them on once or even twice in the build period. Um, but you don't want to be the last person holding the baby when the market turns. Or, oh, and the risk is that you can't assign the contract and you've then got to buy this property you need to make sure you've got the funds in place to actually do that exactly you could find yourself a bit of a sticky wicket exactly okay so you didn't actually do that one then but you came close yeah. came pretty close I, I did all the way up to the actual assigning of that contract but yeah 
didn't press okay. the button. Built there. Fair enough. Okay, I've got another one. Um, on. So don't don't react when I tell you what it is. Actually, you can. Okay. Credit cards and personal loans. Oh, behave yourself. <laughs> there you go. But I'm going to say credit cards and personal loans. Right. So I'm not necessarily saying, although I am aware of people who have literally done this, buy a house using credit cards and personal loans. And I'm talking about unsecured personal loans in particular. Uh, people have actually done this. And, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, it's consumer debt. It should be used for consumer purchases. Actually, probably should be used at all, but that's a different conversation. Um, but, you know, there are, there are finance products for, finance, uh, for specific purposes. And uh, credit cards and personal loans should not really be used to buy a house, although people have done it. Now, my, own, my personal confession, uh, Damien, is I have actually done this, but not to buy a house. I've actually done it to fund works costs. So uh, I think this is where it perhaps plays a more relevant uh, and realistic part of our armory, although one with some risks. And that's um, So if you've got a limited amount of funding, you need usually to either buy the whole property in cash or, or at least put a deposit in, pay for all your fees, but then you've got some works to undertake. And those works, depending on what they are, can be quite expensive. So in, the, in, in a couple of cases, what I've done is I've used uh, credit cards to pay for materials or I've even used a personal loan to pay for some chunky, uh, more structural works on a, couple of, on a couple of projects that I've done. And the idea being is you settle off the, uh, the, the consumer debt once you actually either refinance or sell that property on. So therein lies the risk. Of course, if you don't manage to sell or sell at the right value, or refinance at the right value, then you end up with a bunch of consumer debt that you know is costing you a fortune. It's got high high monthly repayments and that sort of thing. So, I'm not necessarily advocating it as a as a strategy. It's one that's there, and there are perhaps some variations on this that you could potentially consider. Things like offset mortgages um, and, and and sort of even secured loans could sort of fall into this category, but. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to buy a house, and in fact, the mortgage lender might have something to say about that if you did, if you, especially if you didn't declare it, um, because I think that would be mortgage fraud, actually. But um, that would be mortgage fraud. It would be, but if you declared it and they were happy with it, then so be it. But often they will allow you to have borrowings for funding of works, and that's how I used it. So I think I'm clean, and you're a you're a qualified mortgage broker now, so you can tell me that that's true. Well, if this was a video uh, interview, you could see my FCA and RICS approved sad face when you're talking about all this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> we don't approve any of these such things. Um, but now, as you say, the reality is if you're do, and using a credit card to fund works, I mean, using a credit card, this is not financial advice, people, but can make sense even if you pay it off in full just because you get an interest-free period when you're doing it. So credit cards, yeah, neither here there personal loans and when you do the whole balance transfer write a check from your credit card thing it's it's a bit daft to rely on that but equally I as you say I know people that have done it who have taken advantage of the 0% when everyone was doing 0% balance transfers and things like that people were effectively using it as a free dip in and out of they didn't even have to they had the cash available to do it but they thought well why either take a loan out, not a loan, a mortgage out on it, or pay over and above, take their money out of an investment vehicle when they can pay 0% on somebody else's money. So I can see why people do do it, but there is all of the caveats you've just said, all the big risk involved in consumer finance and the 17%, 18% that's sort of standard once you get outside of any of these deals. 
that you end up paying off. So I probably wouldn't recommend it, but I can see if used properly, it's very high risk, but it can work out for you. And we know someone who's made it work particularly well, uh, mentioning no names, but um, you know, purchasing a property part cash, uh, part personal loan at around about 4% and part 0% uh, credit card. So um, their effective ROI on their personal cash investment was enhanced as a result. But I think as a caveat again to that one, the person who did it is fairly financially astute. I mean, Sophisticated investor. In fact, yeah, but I think probably over and above that as well, given sort of their knowledge and their background. So, if anyone was going to do it, I'd I'd be confident that they had looked at all of the risks and were able to take a calculated risk on that one. Yeah, that's true. So we won't give the game away too much on who that is, but yeah, I think uh, we won't be encouraging it either. No, but I was going to say proceed with caution was definitely uh, the the end of that one. But there we go. So that's uh, that's me. Don't you got any more on your list? Uh, I do. How are we doing for time? Oh, we're okay. South? Okay, then I'll crack on. Um, the the next one I've got on, it's kind of... Originally, you'd put these down as two, but I'm going to merge them into one anyway. Um, so it's working with friends and family. Now, I've done that before, um, and we both sort of threw money into the pro into the pot. I put a bit more in than they did, and then I handled all of the sort of desktop due diligence, the surveying side of things and the finance side of things, as would not surprise most people, whereas they were much more hands-on. They actually did the plastering, the works and the property, all that stuff. So I leveraged the fact that I had a family member, it was my cousin, um, who was very good at the practical side of things, didn't like any of the other stuff to do with property, but wanted to get involved in property. So from a creative financing perspective, it minimized the amount of money I had to put into it from a purely from a purchase point of view of the property because he put some of his money in, but also for the work side of things, it saved me having to pay a contractor because he was the one that did most of the work and he paid for the materials. Materials weren't all that much on the project, it was mostly labour, so it again minimised the cost up front for me and then when we sold it, we split the profit 50-50, so my return on investment was much higher than if I'd have just done it normally. Now, there's probably a few things to say about JVs in general, but I think we'll go on to that. But specifically about family, this this particular relationship, partnership that we had, um, it started off very much, let's get drunk in a pub and discuss this and come up with a good business plan, which is what we did, and we started, we did a couple of properties. Then it kind of, because of the family relationship, it, there were some questions that if this was purely commercial, we probably, it wouldn't have been an issue because we could have just said, well, no, we've agreed this, so that's what's going to happen because it was family, it was a bit more negotiated and trying to keep everyone friendly. So at that point, I brought in a, a partnership agreement to actually lay out exactly what it was we were doing. And then after the, the next project we did, we just decided, actually, this isn't worth falling out over. And it, it didn't get that way, but I could see, I think we could both see it was potentially going that way. So we just sort of walked away at that point. So I think the biggest um, warning I suppose to give on that is family and money tend not to mix. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Um, I was going to say, I think, you know, they're, they're sort of, on the one hand, easier to find because you know who your friends and family are. You can have a conversation, perhaps there's a degree of trust already. Maybe you could work together. Maybe there's complementary skill sets like you've identified. So that's the kind of plus side. The downside is we often don't, 
do things properly, and it's probably what you're going to go on to talk about, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. So why don't you just crack on? But I think the downside is you tend tend to leave yourself a little bit exposed, and um, it can get a bit ugly. But particularly if there's a personal relationship involved and some sort of expectation, if it's not fully documented. Yeah. So I think it it is very much a it's a joint venture. It's just the parties are different from a purely hands-off commercial side of things. So, I mean, joint ventures are very good creative finance side of things. And it is a win-win for both, well, for all parties, um, if you do it right. But I suppose that's the big part of it, making sure you do it right. So there's a lot of documentation that needs to go into it to make sure everybody, and the whole, the spirit of it is basically, what is each individual putting into the deal, whether it's finance, time, knowledge, whatever, but what is the expectation of that person? What are they bringing to the table? Similarly, what's the expectation of the other person and what are they bringing to the table? So you're all 100% clear on, okay, you're responsible for this, you're responsible for that. So there's clear differentiation there. And then also play out all of the different scenarios and say, if everything goes according to plan, this is what will happen. You'll be responsible for that, you'll be responsible for that. We will then do this with whatever happens. Don't just be hopeful and wish everything works out fine, always think, you know, what, what is it, plan for the worst, hope for the best. So actually plan out what happens if this goes wrong, what happens if it doesn't sell in the time frame, what happens if it doesn't sell for as much, what happens if costs overrun, what happens if I can no longer fulfill my side of that bargain, what happens if they can't. These are all the things that need to be documented in JV agreement. There are a lot of people out there at the moment going down the friends and family joint venture route and even complete hands-off strangers looking for money to do this creative financing thing on the back of quite often a course that they've been on telling them it's a great idea. If you don't document this properly, it's potentially going to turn around and bite you at some point down the line and it can get very nasty, it can get very legal, it can get very expensive and you can lose friends, family members over it um, or your reputation and a lot of money. So I think they're from my side of things, they're probably the bits I'd focus on. I don't know if there's anything particular you'd focus on over that. Well, I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, of course, we we ourselves get involved with joint ventures, don't we? So um, we can talk quite a lot of experience here. But I think let's just talk about some of the let's let's drill into it a little bit. Let's just talk about some of the things you should document and watch out for. Um, do you, either you can do it or I I can do it. Whatever, whichever one. But um, that when we talk well, about new start, so I okay. know what you're talking about. Okay. In. <laughs> so for, effectively, I think you need a joint venture agreement. Uh, if if there's a profit sharing joint venture, uh, there's two types. Is either you know just some sort of loan arrangement, or there's some sort of profit share arrangement. In either scenario, you need to have a specific contract. So it either be literally a loan agreement, if that's the type of arrangement you have, where you're borrowing money, you pay a fixed interest rate, uh, and you you set out the terms of uh, of that loan how it's repaid, when it's repaid, all those sort of things. Then if it's a joint venture agreement where you're literally into sort of profit sharing, you'd have a joint venture agreement, normally speaking. And that's all the stuff you talked about, defining the roles, the contributions, what is classified as an acceptable cost of the project, um, what is the exit strategy, what are the contingency plans if uh, if it doesn't go according to, to plan, how are decisions made, all these sort of things are in our joint venture agreement which I'm looking at right now, and it's uh, seven pages long. I've seen longer, I've seen shorter, uh, but it, it considers all of the permutations that uh, that can happen. And trust me, I've seen a few alternatives that people are pushing out there which have got holes all over them. 
and uh, I certainly wouldn't sign uh, as presented. I'd wish to negotiate, you know, extra provisions in, you know, um, which which could leave you open-ended. You know, for example, not having a predefined sales period if you're doing a flip. Well, when's it going to be sold then? How do you decide it's going to be sold? Who decides it's going to be sold? We cover that off in our joint venture agreement, don't we, Damien? So I think... Yeah. So it, it, when everybody goes into these agreements, everybody's friendly, everybody's happy, it's going to be the greatest thing in the world and we'll make all of the money ever. That's fine when you start off. As soon as you hit any hurdle in the road, you don't want to then be negotiating and saying, well, what do we do now? I think we should do this. Inevitably, you'll think you should do something that will benefit you. They'll think the opposite and you could end up at loggerheads. If you then end up going back to the contract and it doesn't cover that off, you don't really have a leg to stand on. It's it is a pure bum fight over. Well, I think this, I think that. Where do you go from there? So, as Richard said, we cover off all of these things in our JV agreements, but we also have a caveat that says if for whatever reason there is something outside of this or something unusual happens, there is a procedure in place to still get it agreed, get it signed off to everyone's satisfaction, and there is a process in place for that. That at least we can move forward, and we're not just well. I'm not moving from my position, you're not moving from your position, we're at a deadlock, nothing happens. So we've planned for every possible, that we can think of, scenario, but even we know the stuff that we don't even know might know. Um, so we've got something in there to cover that off as well. That is very rare in contracts that I've seen that people have put out lately. Yeah, because you know the hidden the hidden thing is well if it isn't covered then you know basically no one gets to do anything. But if you can refer to a third party, for example, to mediate or arbitrate, then um, you know it will get resolved at one way or another. Hopefully, is that the president of the RICS? I think I think it might be. I, I'll look. But whilst I look, I tell you what <laughs> the the thing we didn't really speak about, and I think is relevant in this scenario of joint ventures, is security. So do you want to just? Do you, yeah, exactly. Do you want to pick that up, and I'll I'll see who we refer to. Okie dokie. So security for joint ventures. If you are sort of the financing person, depending, as Richard said, depending on if it's um, a, a profit split or as a direct fixed interest, what you need to make sure is you are secure. And if you're the person taking money off someone else, you need to make sure that you give them security. So if it's an individual purchase, then it's quite easy, quite straightforward to do a first charge on that property. It's the equivalent of a mortgage then. So if everything goes wrong, the house gets repossessed, the, all of the monies would go to that first person who has the first charge. Now, if you're using JV Finance with a mortgage in place, that mortgage will always take first charge. And so the best you can hope for as a, as a JV financer is then a second charge on the property. Again, this is all if it's an individual thing. If you start buying it into a company name, then you can look at securing your interest against that company. Now, that opens up a whole series of other questions then about company agreements and sort of debentures and how you're going to get that asset-backed security. So we're not going to go into that because I'm not an accountant. Um, but it's just, I suppose, the biggest thing to highlight is you need to provide security to anyone lending you money and if you are lending money you need to make sure you have security in whatever way shape or form that is now a lot of people will do the whole well just give it to us because we're great that's fine but you really have to you do have to trust them implicitly because again if everything goes wrong where do you stand so are you going to be able to take that person to bankruptcy court to try and make them sell their personal home if that's the only route you've got left versus well okay the project's gone massively wrong but at least I effectively own this property. 
So when we're doing with joint ventures with people, we always make sure anyone that's given us any form of money is always ahead of us in the queue waiting for their money. So whether that's they get first charge over the property um, or anything like that, we always put the client first and then work back from that. And that's kind of that's more of a an ethos and a values that we have as a company. But that's something you, if you are going to go this route, you should make sure you're getting that protected. And if you're the ones going to do it, then I mean, as I say, from our values point of view, we think you should be doing that as well because someone's putting a lot of effort, time, money, well, effort and time into making the money that they've got. If they then give it to you, you do have that responsibility, a moral, ethical, fiduciary responsibility to be sensible with their money and make them money if that's what they want to do, protect their money if that's what they want to do, provide them with an asset that's going to give long-term security, all that stuff. So try not to go on too much of a moral rant there, but there's a lot of people out there that are slightly dubious at that side of things so I think that's I like to think that's how we stand out anyway yeah I agree I with wrong, you. But well of course I agree with you because we, we hope that's, so. that's how we work um, but yeah I think the key there is that that sometimes people will um, go into joint ventures or loans on an unsecured basis um, that's fine as long as you know what you're doing and you know what your risks are and by the way you better have a decent reward if that's what you are doing um, but even if you're promised 100% return, if you have no actual tangible security to go after, how sure are you of being able to recover your money? So uh, that's why we, you know, we, we tend to shy away from that type of arrangement and offer some kind of security. There's all sorts of things you could do. You mentioned that the deeds and declarations of trust and this sort of thing earlier. That's a variation, of course, you can put in place. You can have restrictions on title and these sorts of things as well, So uh, which, which provides a level of security. Um, Anyway, we've done the security thing to death. By the way, the um, arbitration thing in our contract, we refer to the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. Arbitrators, Ooh, even. Okay. There we go. So we thought it was Rick's, but actually we, we defer to the rules of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, and we submit that into court as being final judgment. So if we don't agree, if it's not in agreement and we don't agree, that's where we go, and that's who decides on our behalf. I feel like you chose that one rather than the RICS for some reason. I imagine I would have just said, yeah, let's use the RICS. Yeah, maybe we should in future. Who knows? I'm, I'm relaxed as long as we've got a, a, a re someone sufficiently legit. Yeah, someone we can refer to, talk sensible and is independent. That's what you need. <laughs> yeah. Not your mum. Because <laughs> she's always going to side with you. Okay, well, that's brilliant. In there, I'm well. That's true. <laughs> that's been brilliant. I think just in the interest of time, we probably ought to think about wrapping it. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say. Is a more general thing or anything that's been missed, Damien? Before we uh... not particularly no, not that I can think of anyway. No, I think some of the things came out, didn't they, as we went along. There are risks, uh, perhaps, with some of these uh, strategies. There are some commercial aspects you need to think about, how you find these people to offer these creative financing techniques, and then ultimately how you contract and you rely on security. Well, some of the big takeaways, weren't there? Perhaps one or two more I can't think of right now. But um, we've mopped up 10 more creative financing strategies that you may be having your armory, by all means, reach out to us if you want to talk about any of those we've spoken about, uh, particularly the ones we've got some experience in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We can probably help you more with those. But Damien, I just want to say thanks a lot. Um, as ever, it's great to have you on and get your insights and your views uh, in the colorful way that you share things. I mean, this was me very monotone or monochrome even, so it gets more colorful. But always a pleasure joining you, Richard, and hopefully your audience found that useful. 
Yeah, thanks a lot. And we avoided the swear words. Don't get one in now. Thanks, Damien. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Ta-da. Ta-da. Bye for now. So there we have it, and the big news. Damien managed to avoid swearing for an entire hour talking property. Bless him. <laughs> but on a serious note, that's another 10 creative financing strategies covered off over the last couple of episodes, eight of which we, i.e. Damien and I, have actually done ourselves. One was a near miss, and another we had some personal experience of whilst not actually deploying it personally. So, you know, very much covered off uh, those 10 to a greater or less extent ourselves. So you might be happy to note that we don't go around squatting other people's houses for a living then, I imagine. But next time, I plan to do a bit of a series wrap-up, which will attempt to pick up some of the salient and potentially common or even less well-known themes that have been shared by my guests over the last couple of months. A few of them popped up at the end of the discussion with Damien, of course, such as risks, commercial factors, how to find these opportunities, how best to contract them, and finally, what level of security is available in each case. I imagine there'll be others though, so do make sure you join me in the series finale to find out more. Please don't forget our 360 degree property business workshops later this month that I mentioned earlier. The link's in the show notes, so I'm not going to rattle on about that anymore. But as always, email me personally if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. The show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.